You're listening to Everybody Pulls the Tarp, the go-to podcast for high performers. I'm Andrew Moses. Each week, you'll hear my thought-provoking conversations with Olympians, pro athletes, CEOs, elite coaches, best-selling authors, and other high performers to uncover their secrets to success. Get ready to be inspired each week when we talk about leadership, teamwork, work ethic, and more. Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, everyone. This week, my guest is WNBA champion, philanthropist, and entrepreneur, Elena Beard. In 2004, Elena was drafted second overall in the WNBA draft by the Washington Mystics and went on to become one of the most accomplished players in WNBA history. She is a four-time WNBA All-Star, two-time WNBA Defensive Player of the Year, and won the WNBA championship in 2016 with the Los Angeles Sparks. Today, Elena is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and sits on the board of various companies. She is the founder of 318 Foundation, a mentorship program for girls in Elena's hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. And in 2021, she launched Transition Play, an organization that helps world-class women athletes launch new careers when their playing days are over. But that's not all. Elena is also hard at work, leading a bid to buy a WNBA team. And one day, she even hopes to be the next Oprah. In our conversation, you'll hear some of the secrets behind Elena's success on and off the court. She talks about doing things the unconventional way, why she never chooses the easy path, her formula for learning new things, and so much more. This conversation is filled with lessons that will help you be the best at whatever you do. So let's pull the tarp and get straight to WNBA champion, Elena Beard. I want to go way back. I want to go back to your, your days as a kid. When did it hit you that you were actually pretty good at basketball? Yeah, no, you're taking me all the way back. Well, I, I suppose I should begin just giving a little bit of context about my origin, right? Born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana, Southern girl. I always say that you can, um, you can take the, the girl out of the country, but you can never take the country out of the girl. And that's 100% me. I would say that I, I picked up a basketball probably around the age of eight or nine years old, but that it happened sort of organic. Growing up in Shreveport, Louisiana, you know, being sort of the girl that was always engaging and playing with the guys out on out in the neighborhood and on the streets, basketball just naturally became sort of a love of mine. I figured that I was really good at it when I started beating all of the guys um, in the neighborhood at a very early age. And then when it came down to picking squads, I was always picked over my brother. So I was like, you know what? I may have like a, I may have a, a, a future in, in this. And then I just, I, I, I took off, right? It's from picking up the ball in the neighborhood to then trying out for my middle school team. Decided to try out in the seventh grade because in the sixth grade, I was a little too shy. And um, ended up making the team. And it was history from there. I, I, I became extremely obsessed. History, no question. Uh, in high school at, at Duke, in the WNBA, history, you made history for sure. I'm curious. I ask people who discover that they're really good at something, often run into a moment where they experience adversity for the first time. And they experience kind of that resistance and that challenge for maybe the first time, it came easy. And then all of a sudden, there's a period of growth. When did that happen for you? Wow, great question. I would say that it started very early. As I mentioned, I started playing 
organized ball in the seventh grade with my middle school team. And in that summer of my seventh grade year, I decided to try out for a local club team. And it happened to be, at the time, the best local club team in Shreveport. I got cut, right? And then my parents decided to, you know, search for another club team for me to try out. Or maybe that club team recommended another club team for me to go to. And I ended up, you know, making that team. And, you know, I, I considered that like my, my first sort of bout with adversity because I knew sort of what I was capable of. My parents knew what I was capable of in that moment, but I wasn't good enough for that team. And it, that drove me from that moment. Every single time someone told me I wasn't good enough, it motivated me to prove them wrong. And it was that moment. And it was also the moment that my middle school coach, when I made the team, told me, hey, you, you know, Elena, you're, you're good, but you'll never be as good as this upperclassman. If you watch her, maybe you'll get close. And I'll never forget those words. Well, I mean, it's a lesson to everybody in anything. I mean, that person who was cut <laughs> from that team went on to win two defensive player of the years in, in the WNBA. So uh, anything is possible, especially when you work hard. So what did you do after that point? Obviously, some of those moments have left a really a mark you know, in your mind. You, you, you haven't forgotten those moments. What did you do after? How did you commit to doing those things that you needed to to get to that next level? Well, I think when you, you know, and I've said this before, but when you sort of grow up in a community that I grew up in, you know, both of my parents have a high school education. And when you see them on a daily basis, work their tails off to provide for their family, you want to do the same thing. But in my mind, I wanted to do it to take a burden off of my parents And once I picked the basketball, I began to understand that there was an opportunity for me to be the first in my family to attend college. And I knew that that round orange ball would sort of be my vehicle to get there. And so I became committed to that process. One, I loved it. And my parents never forced me to do anything. They only supported me. And so I told my parents, I remember, I, I told them, I was like, hey, mom and dad, you guys won't have to pay for me to go to college. I'm going to get a scholarship. And I think I was like in the eighth grade or something like that. And then from that point on, I ended up attending sort of a really good high school, Southwood High School, walked into sort of a championship culture. I chose that school again, sort of the advice that I received from other people within sort of my you know network, because I was pretty skilled. And I was told, if Elena, if you want to really be good, if you want to play your game the way that you want to play your game, you should probably go to a school that's going to allow you to do that. I didn't want that. I wanted to be coached. I needed framework and a foundation. I needed to understand the fundamentals of the game. And um, it's interesting at that age, I knew that that's what I wanted. So very privileged to play for you know the best coach at the time and still to this day to ever coach high school girls basketball in Shreveport, Louisiana. He taught me how to respect the game. He taught me how to live and breathe like a champion on a daily basis. And he prepared me for the challenge that Duke um, would kind of brought me. Well, let's get into the time at Duke, Elena. While you're at Duke, you become Duke's first ever National Player of the Year. The team compiled 126 and 14 record. By my quick math, that's a 90% winning percentage or a 900 uh, winning percentage while you were at Duke. That is pretty remarkable. So when you get to Duke, how did you adjust? It was hard. I don't even know if I adjusted. (laughs) 
it, it maybe, you know, Andrew, it maybe took me a, a good two years to just understand the standards of Duke and what was expected of me. It's unfortunate, you know, and I never want to approach this or have my journey story, you know, come from sort of a deficit perspective. But I grew up sort of, again, in Shreveport, Louisiana, where the educational system at the time was ranked 48th or 49th or, or something of that nature. I did what I was sort of supposed to do, right? I graduated high school with a 4.2 GPA, get to Duke, and I feel like the dumbest person in the room on a daily basis. And that was, um, that was intense. It was hard. It was frustrating, especially when I had set a certain standards for myself, right? And so the game of basketball quickly became that space of calmness for me. It became that, that place that I was familiar with. It became that place that I knew that I was really, really good, despite what the classroom was telling me. And um, I just used sort of, you know, those moments to adjust day by day by day. Cried every single day because I was 16 hours away from home. I was a mommy and daddy's girl and had a really great relationship with them. But it was the difficulty of the transition that made my homesickness more amplified that amplified my homesickness. But every day I, I managed to, to get through it as I've always been taught to do. Do you think that that's something that a lot of people can apply to their own life when they're experiencing something new? It sounds to me like what you did was you, you had something that you were really good at and really comfortable with, and that was basketball. And then you, you really tried to focus on that, something where it was almost like a safe zone and a home for you while everything else at Duke maybe academically felt a little bit more overwhelming and harder to adjust to, you know, even though obviously from an academic perspective, you had a great, great high school career, it felt overwhelming, even if it wasn't overwhelming. Is that something like finding that, that safe zone? Is that something you've done other times in your career? I don't think I've ever chosen the safe route ever. Right. And, you know, like I, as you know, we've been in this conversation for about five minutes now and every single sort of chapter in my, in my journey, I'm sort of, highlighting the fact that I've, I've taken the untraditional path, middle school to high school, high school to college. With the talent that I had coming out of high school, Andrew, I wasn't supposed to leave Louisiana. At the time, Louisiana Tech was the mecca of women's basketball. It was Tennessee, it was Louisiana Tech, and it was, um, I think LSU was up in, in that rank as well. But I've never, ever chosen the easy path because in my mind, I've always had a vision of what I wanted to become. And with basketball, it was the best to ever play the game. And so that required a certain process and a certain discipline and a certain focus to get to that, you know, that outcome or to achieve that outcome. When it became sort of who I wanted to be as a, as a person outside of the game, it was always Oprah Winfrey. At the time, Oprah Winfrey was like my North Star because she was the representation of me. That's like a Black woman having her own show, prime time, like, killing it on the business side, that's all I ever wanted. And so that then became my process outside of the court. And so I did what I needed to do with a discipline and a focus to get there. I'm still, yep. I'm still, still, still reaching for it, you know? That's absolutely awesome. Have you ever met Oprah? I have never met Oprah, but um, one day. One day, one day. And I've talked about that with people. The concept that you don't have to always meet your mentor. Or you, you don't have to meet a mentor. You can 
read about a mentor and watch a mentor and try and or, and it it's really fascinating to hear you you uh, invoke Oprah in that in that context. So let's talk about the transition from college to the WNBA. Second overall pick, you go to the Washington Mystics. Eventually, you know you're you're great on both sides of the ball, but you know I want to dig into your def- the defensive prowess. Obviously incredibly strong on the defensive side of the ball, back-to-back defensive player of the year in the WNBA 2017 and 2018. You ended your pro career with the most career steals at the time amongst active players, 697. I want to know, what are some of the ingredients that go into being really good on the defensive side of the ball? You mentioned focus before. I've got to imagine that focus has to be a part of it. No, you're right. It's, it's everything that I just named, right? It's me. It's instilled in me, the focus, the discipline. You know, a lot of people look at defense and think that it takes a lot of skill. It takes no skill, right? It takes preparation. It takes the will and desire to stop the other person and to, to sacrifice yourself for your teammates, right? My high school coach, there were times we would walk into the gym and we never picked up a ball. That was his way of instilling fundamentals, desire, hard work, discipline, focus. That was his way of doing that. And that's why I became a really good two-way player. I could score on anyone. I could also defend anyone. And that's very rare. Um, and so when I transitioned to sort of the, the WNBA, I was a pretty good two-way player. But it was in 2010 when I had a potential career-ending injury where the doctors literally said, Elena, you have a 10% chance for returning to an elite level. I've never seen anything like this in your sport. I had what he referred to, Dr. Nunley referred to as a, a ballet injury where you're always on your toes. And so that, that force that created a, a tear in my posterior tibial tendon, and that is the tendon that controls the function of your foot. And so he had no clue what that outcome would be after the surgery. And so after that surgery, it took me about, an, uh, I would say, a year and a half to two years to get back to a level of being able to play in a, at an elite level. It wasn't where I wanted to be, but it was good enough to sign a contract with the Los Angeles Sparks. But that was the moment where I had to reinvent myself and figure out how I could make myself indispensable and bring the value to a team when I knew that my body couldn't move and do the things that it once did two years prior. What are some of the little things that you were doing as you reinvented yourself that you think contributed to your success? Yeah, on the court or off the court? Both. I think it started with me as a person, right? And figuring out who I was, what was my identity outside of the game. As I mentioned earlier, I was obsessed with becoming the best player to ever play the game. And I had such a narrow focus on it. And ultimately that led to my injuries, right? Because I would feel pain. Like for instance, when I tore my tendon, I knew that I tore my tendon. I felt it pop, but I finished my workout. Because in my mind, I was like, I got to have surgery anyway. So why not finish? Right. And so that that led to that. So I would say sort of just figuring out who I was as an individual. And that's forever evolving. Right. You're forever growing through that and figuring it out. And then off the court, I took advantage of that, quote unquote, downtime. Rehab is actually harder (laughs) than playing the actual game. But in that downtime, I decided to take on internships and fellowships. And one of my first internships was with the CEO of Jamba Juice, James White, because I had this grand plan of building out a portfolio of franchises and Smoothie King headquartered in Louisiana was like my vision. That was my dream, right? It's like 
the franchising model resonated with me because it gave me a blueprint. It gave me steps to get to where I wanted to go. And that made sense to me. And so I pushed forward with keeping in tune with the trend of the franchising world. And so the opportunity came about for me to intern with James White. And I took it during that off WNBA off season in 2010. And um, it forever changed my life. It forever changed my trajectory in terms of how I then pursued business. Let's talk about that, Elena, because you're involved in so many different things right now. You are the founder of 318 Foundation. You're the founder of Transition Play. You've been very public about your visions of owning a WNBA franchise one day, and, and you've got your hands in plenty of other things as well. In particular with Transition Play, at some point you must have identified that you could build a framework or a platform that helps women during the professional transition period after their athletic careers end into what's next. When did you have that aha moment that, that you could essentially help others fill that gap? Was it during that internship or was it at some other point? Well, you know, I've, I've, gone, I've had a pretty, you know, interesting sort of path speaking about the injury and, and how I sort of started engaging in fellowships and internships in the off seasons. In that moment, I knew I had to build this capacity to achieve certain goals that I've set for myself. And so transition play came about because I've always been sort of in the mindset that in order to share the knowledge, I have to get deep into the weeds of it, right? And so everything that I've done, whether it's opening up my own franchise, whether it's entering into the venture capital space, establishing sort of the 318 Foundation, now Transition Play, but you know, also the WNBA. I was a rookie in every, I mean, I'm a rookie in all of it. I don't have sort of the quote unquote business acumen that a traditional MBA student may have, but I am gaining that in my own way. And so when I um, retired, officially announced my retirement in January of 2020, about a month or so later, I transitioned to my then role as senior associate with Silicon Valley Bank Capital. And that simply came about because of the work I put in 10 years prior. I met the president of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, Mike Deschanel, at an event at the CES. And that event came about because I was engaging in a fellowship with Ryan Neese of Nextplay Capital because I wanted to understand the venture capital space and it all just came together in that way. And so Mike Deschanel and I, who's one of my biggest supporters and mentors, built a really, really good relationship around it. I kind of expressed to him my vision of wanting to create a bridge between female athletes and the venture capital space. As I was doing my research through the venture capital space, on the venture capital space, I realized like, I mean, no knock to these guys, but Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, Chris Paul, all of these guys get access to these cap tables. Why can't women have the same opportunity and access? And that quickly became sort of my vision. Every decision that I make, it's always with others in mind, right? It's, it's always how similar to you, Andrew, we spoke about this before the show. How can I leverage sort of the, the network and the, the access that I have and share that with others? Because everyone's not privy to that. It didn't come easy. It came because of the work that I put in. But I put in this work because I had this vision of bringing others along with me. And so transition play became transition play when I had my tenure at SVB Capital. And it was overwhelming, right? It was, Elena, what did you just jump into? <laughs> like, I would wake up some days like intimidated about the day. Like, how am I going to get through this day? But in the moment, 
I kept reminding myself that this is exactly why I took on this opportunity because I have to learn. I have to be uncomfortable. I have to do all of this in order to build for others. And so Transition Play became the community that I was in search for when I was at SVB Capital and I couldn't find it. My network is predominantly white male. That's just the way that it is. My mentorships, my mentors, all of it is predominantly white male. And so I'm after sort of this, um, I'm on this mission to create a shift in how that is different. That is so cool. Alina, I'm curious, when you think about, you mentioned obviously having access and a network is a challenge for some. What do you think are some of the other big challenges that pro athletes transitioning to life after their careers or anyone who's trying to transition through different phases of their career in any industry? What are some of the biggest challenges besides access? Fear, right? A lot of people fear being vulnerable. I think exposure and not necessarily taking it on yourself to be curious enough, right? Like, and the other thing I think athletes face is the challenge of asking for help. That is the hardest thing to do. It's been very hard for me to do, but I've managed to sort of navigate it because for our entire career, we've been taught to get through it. You're not allowed to be injured. You're not allowed to be the weakest link, right? You're not allowed to be this or that. So I will probably pinpoint asking for help as the number one thing. Fear drives sort of that ask or I guess not wanting to ask. So fear, asking for help, and then lack of curiosity are a few things that drive it, in my opinion. Why do you think people outside of basketball, anything, why do you think people are afraid to ask for help? Because it forces you to, to be vulnerable. It, it, that's it. It forces you to be vulnerable. A lot of people don't like to speak about their weaknesses. And I have found strength in doing that. It has taken me some time to understand it. But once you, you understand that vulnerability is a strength rather than a weakness, you're going to see your life change for the better. No question. Now, before we wrap up, I want to talk about the future. And you've been very public about your dream of owning a WNBA mm-hmm. franchise. You're not shy to take on a challenge. And I'm curious, what are some of the hurdles and challenges between today and you owning a WNBA franchise? What are some of the breakthroughs that you've got to navigate? I have named a few of them throughout this conversation. But to your point about sort of being public about sort of my desire, it's against everything that I believe in. I believe in putting my head down and doing the work. But with that publicity, I have to make people aware of what I want to do because I am coming at this from a disadvantage, right? I don't necessarily have the liquidity that maybe our male counterparts would have. I don't necessarily have the quote unquote experience needed to sort of lead an an ownership group. I am black. I am a woman. Those are all strengths in my mind, right? But that is what drives me to get this done. It may happen differently than what I envision it happening um, or how I envisioning it happen, but it will eventually happen. And so I had to come out and be a little public about it. But in terms of the challenges that are sort of standing in my way, it's, it's the capital, right? You have, it's the arena. You got to have the arena. You got to have the capital. And so my life as of today is about getting on these phone calls, having these conversations with potential investors. And it may take me longer than others because I believe in sort of the genuine relationship versus the transactional relationship. 
And that could very well be my downfall as a businesswoman. And if it is, I'm okay with that. I've always said this, the one thing that I'm most proud of over my entire career, you've named off a few accolades and championships and things of that nature. I've had the privilege of playing in 27 countries because of the game. And it's those relationships that I was capable of building over the course of my my career that I'm most proud of. And um, I take that serious. You sure do, Elena. And it's the relationships and it's the mindset you bring to those relationships that you want to bring everybody along with you. And that it's not just about you and as I sit here and think about our conversation and, and your career, I think that's that's such an important part of it. And thinking back to what you said a few moments ago about how it's it's not like you to be very public about a challenge. I I've read, you know, something that you've said where you say you work in the background. You work in the background, you put your head down and you do the work. You alluded to it a little bit there. But I think that's an important lesson too, that sometimes you you've done. You have to stand up and say, This is what I'm trying to do. I'm gonna work in the background, but if anybody out there can help me. Yes. That's going to be a part of the process. We're all going to do this together. And who knows, maybe one day you'll have a, an Oprah-esque show as well, in addition to owning that WNBA franchise. I think, Elena, anything you know you put your mind to, you, you can accomplish. And you're a, a, a testament to that. This has been so much fun. I have learned so much. I could talk to you for hours. And uh, I just hope we can check in again sometime and hear how everything is going along the, uh, this phase of your, your journey and beyond. Yeah, I would love to keep you sort of in tune with everything, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you growing this thing beyond 130 episodes. So, All right, Elena, that's what we're going to do. You keep pulling the tarp and we'll keep this rolling as well. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you can catch all of our upcoming episodes. And if you are like me and want a world full of tarp pullers, then leave a review to help others find us. You can also follow me on Twitter at Andrew H. Moses. That's Andrew H. Moses. And be sure to sign up for my email newsletter at everybodypullsthetarp.com slash newsletter. I'll share tips and insights to help you achieve maximum success and happiness. Today's a great day to pull the tarp. I am rooting for you. See you next time.